You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. The Second City is excited to work with Amazon as part of their new and exciting app called AMP. AMP is a home where anyone can create live radio-style shows alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including ours. Join the Second City live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central Time for our show, Second City Public Radio. SCPR is an interactive weekly lampoon of all things public radio. Each week, our host and an ever-expanding panel of Second City characters open up the lines to listeners around the U.S. to ask questions and offer us opinions on a slew of wide-reaching subjects. Download the app, and don't forget to tune in AMP Thursdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. My guest on the podcast today is Kevin Cruz, who is a professor of history and director of the Center for Collaborative History at Princeton University. Um, he was honored as one of America's top young innovators in the arts and sciences by the Smithsonian Magazine and selected as one of the top young historians in the country by the History News Network. Uh, He's recently been named a distinguished lecturer by the Organization of American Historians and a John Simon Guggenheim Fellow. So he and Julian Selzer have ended this new collection. It's called Myth America, Historians Take On the Biggest Legends and Lies About Our Past. Enjoy the pub. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting DSAMed. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Kevin Cruz, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. The first line in your new book is, quote, we live in the age of disinformation, end quote. And I want to put an emphasis on the word the in that sentence because... Disinformation is as old as history, right? So what's the difference now? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, uh, we might not have meant to put much uh, weight on that uh, that article, uh, the, but I think uh, it, it earns it. Um, we've had disinformation before. We've had lies about, um, about history in particular before. Uh, but what really separates uh, this era from the past is uh, both uh, the quantity of misinformation we've got. It really is uh, flooding the zone like never before, mm-hmm. but also the intent behind it. Um, uh, there really is a, a coordinated, it seems, effort to deceive the public on a variety of fronts. In the past, when we argued about history, it was, well, which point of emphasis should we have? What what mm-hmm. fact matters more here, right? Uh, and Instead, today, we've got people throwing out things that are just complete lies, right? So the starting point is, well, did this even happen? Is it a fact, right? Uh, and that's uh, that's just something wholly new. And so that's, I think, why we uh, singled this out as something uh, a little more pronounced in the past. I was thinking about this, and I recall that famous Upton Sinclair quote, it's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his yeah. not understanding it. And I think that one of the things that ties this thing together it might not be money, but it certainly is power if it's not money. And that might kind of mean the same thing in this regard. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think that's true. I think there are, look, in the book, we talk about a lot of myths, and some of them are innocent. Some of them are widely held across, we call them bipartisan myths. You know, America's not an empire. America's exceptional. You know, Democrats and Republicans, liberals and conservatives believe those things. But a lot of the myths we're talking about uh, in the book uh, are ones that are really propagated by partisans on the right. And it's for some kind of gain, 
For some, it's financial. For some, it's political power. For some, it's a combination of both. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think they're really invested in it. And, and that's what we're pushing back against. Yeah, uh, I, I think I don't know if this happened today or yesterday because uh, you're very active on Twitter and I'm I'm on there occasionally. And, you know, it's an interesting time. Yeah, uh, to be on there. But the whole thing around NPR. Being yeah. Sponsored, I, and that was just stunning to me. That, yeah. that- NPR is now officially state run or state affiliated, I think. But state affiliated, we usually mean, you know, Pravda. Uh, this is something yeah. you know, kind of uh, spouting RP. the line. NPR has some public funding, but by as someone noted, you know, by that logic, Tesla is a state affiliated company because they too receive some public money. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not good. Not good at all. No. All right. I want to dig into some of these and, and I'm sort of curious. Uh, like uh, the chicken and egg on this. Did yeah. you go to your fellow historians and say, what do you want to write about? Did you have in mind themes that you wanted to explore? How, how did this co- rogue collection uh, come together? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, it, it was mostly themes we wanted to explore. Okay. Um, uh, but w- in doing that, we sought out people who we knew could explore them well. What we wanted were um, historians who... Uh, could speak well to the general public. Uh, this book isn't for historians. Uh, th- in fact, we're um, this is all kind of conventional wisdom and common knowledge to historians. We're trying to address the gap between what the public thinks they know and what we actually know from our time in the archives. Um, so everything you get in here is kind of a standard account. We could have asked pretty much any historian to step up to the bat and deliver what the profession knows. Uh, so we sought out people who we knew uh, could engage well with the general public. And a lot of them are on Twitter doing this, uh, where they're you know kind of engaged uh, pushing back against lies on the right, doing so in a way in which uh, uh, people can, uh, can I think, easily understand. Some of them are on Facebook, some are on Substack, all are writing op-eds, but really engage with the general public because what we wanted were short, snappy pieces. You know, most of them are about 5,000 words, mm-hmm. uh, you know, 10 pages in a book uh, that can be read uh, and digested by someone without a lot of jargon, without a lot of outside, um, you know, knowledge needing to be brought uh, and really answer these pressing issues in a way that people can understand. We interview a ton of social scientists on this podcast, and it's amazing when you just take a step back and realize what crappy metaphors we have for things and how they push us towards believing things. Yeah. And, and I talked to Adam Alter from the Stern School of Business this morning, and he has a whole section. It's a book about getting unstuck and some of the research around that and, and you know, the knowledge that if you ask someone to pick a number between one and 10, the majority of people are going to say seven. Mm-hmm. I have tried this out. It it is largely true. And it's like, so if our brains are doing that with a number, um, certainly when you talk about something like American exceptionalism, a phrase that has burrowed its way into our brains and we don't even know necessarily how, David Bell's piece on that was fascinating to me. Yeah, it's great. really didn't expect like Stalin to come up. Right, right, yeah, yeah. yeah so, talk a bit about that? Yeah, yeah. David Bell is is my colleague at Princeton. He's a French historian, and to his oh. credit, wade into this issue of American exceptionalism uh, in a book full of American historians. But I think that outsider perspective really lets him see it anew. Uh, and what David shows in his piece is that we owe this term that you're right is is in all our brains, American exceptionalism. We owe it to two very unlikely political bedfellows: Joseph Stalin and Newt Gingrich. Those two, <laughs> you know, you know, a classic buddy comedy. And uh, Stalin uh, is really responsible for this term, or rather the communist around him who sought to explain, look, you're mad that we haven't developed communist revolution in America like we thought we would. But that's because America is different. America mm. is exceptional to the rules of history. It didn't have a feudal past. It didn't have these stages of society that Europe had. And therefore, it's not going to go according to Marxist plan. Hmm. Now, for decades, that's the way in which American exceptionalism was understood. Why does America not have a strong kind of socialist current uh, or why did it not go the kind of the path to communism that they expected other countries to do? Well, the problem came when um, Newt Gingrich, who was a history PhD, mm-hmm. who was in those seminar rooms, took this phrase and put it into the public sphere, but in a rather different way. The old way was, why is America not following this historical arc we would expect it to follow why is it different when gingrich talked about american exceptionalism it was america is better than anyone else not just different but better and america has nothing to learn 
from other countries as a result of its exceptionalism, right? So when liberals would point to, you know, we've got to do healthcare like Western Europe, or we should have a uh, social safety system, or we should have labor laws like they do, he would say, no, 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 America is exceptional. None of those other examples from the world apply here. We're different. We've got to do it our own way, right? So between Stalin and Gingrich, that's where it comes from. And, and, you, and David notes in this essay that there's Chinese exceptionalism, there is Serbian exceptionalism, yeah. there is Tunisian exceptionalism. All countries think they're exceptional. I mean, this is, the, this is maybe the best thing about American exceptionalism is we believe that we're the only people who can be exceptional, right? Yeah. People in all countries have this kind of nationalist, patriotic fervor where they think they're the best, right? You Americans may chant USA, USA, USA at sporting events. Other countries are chanting for their teams, too. And so we all think we're exceptional. And this is what, you know, Obama said this at the start of his term uh, and, of course, got roasted for it. How dare you say any other country could have anything like a sense of, of exceptionalism like Americans do? It's funny. I'm reading uh, a podcast coming up uh, is with uh, an economist named Ha Jun Chang, and it's called Edible Economics. And he's Korean. And uh, he studied at Cambridge. So it's it's basically he picks a food every chapter. And through that food sort of explains an economic principle, but it almost always is around nation building and mm-hmm. around an, an, an idea that we saw inside. Well, like, like the term banana Republic. And I just realized I've been shopping at banana Republic forever. And just now it yeah. depends on me that that's a slur. Yep. Yep. Like, wait a sec. I knew that. Yep. Like, how did I, like this was satirized in a Woody Allen movie in the seventies. I don't understand but now we gave it a pass so again. These, 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 and and your book, this this collection is filled with this, uh, uh, and one of them that really kind of screwed me up uh, because it is the the essay around vanishing Indians. Yeah, is I think of this book, bury my heart at wounded knee, not in the way that sort of fleshes out inside this this essay. Yeah, yeah. So that's Ari Kelman's piece, and, and Ari's a, a brilliant historian of the American West and Native American history. And he notes in that piece that the D. Brown's book, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, was something that at the time, and I think largely since, has been regarded as being, um, uh, for lack of a better term, pro-Native American, right? Yeah. It, it provided a sympathetic view mm-hmm. of Native Americans, encouraged uh, Anglos to, 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 to care about their issues, to care about their needs. But as Ari notes in that piece, it actually unwittingly propagated a larger problem, which is this, this tropey call to the vanishing Indian. This idea that Native Americans are in peril and are, in fact, kind of fading from view. And so while readers of D. Brown's book might have felt bad about that, they assumed that that was the case, right? That Native right. Americans are are kind of fading from society and not still a vibrant part of America, right? And my understanding is, is to our vision of the American West, and I'm talking about cowboy films, mm-hmm. is not anywhere close to what was actually happening in, in that movement. Or if it was, it was for such few years yeah. in terms yeah. of cattle drives and that sort of thing. In terms of cattle but, drives, and, and most ca- a lot of cowboys were African-American. Yeah. Right? And, and that's not the image we get. Yeah. Right. And, and so that, that one kind of iconic figure has been blown up into this, this, this larger um, uh, kind of mythology about the West. Yeah. Be- because it also is hiding all these sort of ugly, you know, uh, truths inside of that in terms of well who owned what what land and then this particular essay has rick santorum quoted as saying right. we birthed a nation from nothing nothing right nothing. yeah but again for for santorum the indians you know had, had vanished a long time ago this idea that that is kind of common honestly and and even at the time in 18th and 19th century um uh, uh reporting from the, the eastern united states this idea of a virgin landscape depopulated there's no one there right and then occasionally you'd have these stories about these conflicts with with indians who had somehow miraculously cropped up on this this land that that was depopulated and and unexplored Mm. uh another one that really uh popped for me was sarah churchwell's america first yeah um and uh it's interesting so one of the quotes from there is political myths are never far from conspiratorial thinking um, which immediately jumped to Obama and birtherism as being the sort of m- most modern thing that we can sort of grasp, I think. Yeah, and as she shows, uh, so that America First slogan, which which Trump has, has picked up, is one yeah. that has a, a long and ugly history, uh, and not a good one. Uh, and on the surface, it seems, again, like America is, is, is exceptional, 
we put America first. It seems wholly natural. The problem is, is that uh, the politics was, uh, that this, uh, this phrase was used for uh, is really sharply reactionary, uh, highly uh, 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 tied to white nationalism, uh, isolationism, anti-Semitism. Uh, the, the America that they imagined putting first was an America of, uh, of kind of white Anglo-Saxon stock, right? So the Klan uses this phrase. Uh, yeah. In the 1920s, in the second uh, iteration of the Klan, as we call it, when it's at the peak of its power, marching down, you know, in front of the the Capitol in Washington D.C., uh, controlling several you know major states, places like Indiana, Oregon, almost completely under control of the Klan. Uh, they're calling for America first. And by that, they mean an America for their kind of Americans, uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. They're deeply opposed to Catholics and Jews, and of course, non-whites uh, across the board. The phrase comes up again with the America First Committee uh, in the uh, the rise to World War II. Uh, people like uh, Charles Lindbergh uh, were pushing this. Mm-hmm. Again, the idea that America needed to stay out of the war because this is a war that America had no role in, that there was no need to defend uh, uh, the peoples of Europe, especially uh, the Jews who were under assault, uh, that that was uh, something America shouldn't be involved in. We should mind our own business, right? So it served uh, kind of conservative reactionary forces. Uh, picked, up those, by, picked up by like Goldwater, uh, George right. Wallace, Pat Buchanan, of, of course, Trump, we mentioned, but I mean, this is like, it just never, it doesn't go away. No, it's a bad penny that, that, that just, just keeps popping up over and over again. And it does because it, again, on the surface, it seems nice and neat. It seems just simply patriotic, but it's got this dog whistle that reaches out uh, to kind of the worst elements of the far right. It's, <laughs> the thing is stunning about all of this, like, with the exception of the indigenous uh, populations, none of us came from here. Right. And we are, it's just like, and like in reading through some of these two, it's like, oh, they really hated the Germans for a while, you know? And then yeah. I know my, my late uh, Irish American mom, you know, just talked about growing up in Boston and, you know, the, them hating the Irish. And, you know, it's like, no wow. dogs or cat, no dogs are Irish allowed. Yeah. No dogs are Irish or not. And now it's trans people. Like it yep. just, it's, it's just like we're, we're, we've been shown this over and over and over again. And I'd like to think that, that there, there's an evolution and there, there yeah. probably is in some regards. I think we could probably point to. There, but there it, is. I mean, look, Erica Lee's essay on, on immigration in this, I think kind of dovetails off this because what she shows there is there's been a perennial fear about immigrants. Yeah. Well, what's changed over time is who those immigrants are. So my ancestors, the Germans, were the first ones hated. You know, back in the time of the founding, that's what they were worried about. They were worried about the Germans. Then they started worrying about the Irish. Then it was the Italians. And then it was the Greeks. And then it was Asians. And uh, uh, on and on and on, right? Uh, and what's, I think, remarkable about this country's history is that that theme of anti-immigrant panic is always there. But within the matter of a generation, the people we're worrying about become the worriers, right? Yeah. So, so in the 1920s, Greek Americans were at the top of the hit list of places like the Klan. Mm. 40, 50 years later, Spiro Agnew is Nixon's vice president, talking about the silent majority, worrying about all these agitators on the outside, right? Mm-hmm. So you constantly, Joe McCarthy, who was defending against anti-American thing, is a Catholic and a century before, the McCarthy's would have been seen as the biggest threat to America, right? So there's constantly, and it's it's kind of a dark humor, but there's constantly this theme of the people who are discriminated against get into becoming an American, and what's more American than discriminating against the next wave of immigrants or the next wave of people on the outs, right? Um, but there's a certain confidence I think we can take in this and seeing that eventually, eventually all these hated groups find their way in, right? Uh, and and I think it's 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 right for us to point out the hypocrisy. I've done this with uh, with friends of mine about, you know, I know your family's immigrant history and, and you were once hated as much as these people you hate, you know, to call them out on that. I think that's perfectly fine. There's we can take a, a kind of confidence in the in the long arc uh, of, uh, of of American assimilation. Well, I think, too, Erica talks about this push pull framework, which yeah. I think is kind of a neat and interesting idea because it, it, it can you explain what that is because i think yeah. i've yeah. not heard that phrase before yeah so so erica's uh organizing theme for this piece was a couple of ads that use this phrase they keep coming yeah right we saw this with the migrants we saw this with with pete wilson's uh anti-immigrant push in uh with prop 187 in california in the 1990s 
they keep coming. And that's a powerful phrase, which implies that there's an outside threat, which is coming this way, right? That they are simply doing this to us. And what Erica notes in her piece is that it's not that simple. It's not simply outside waves of immigrants suddenly deciding to come to America because we're great. There are incentives being yeah. put out by American businesses, by the American government, looking for immigrants, recruiting them. And so we are drawing them to us. And then when they get here saying, no, no, why, why would you keep coming? Well, we're inviting them. That's part of the problem. Wow. Um, United States is not an empire or we are an empire. We are an empire. This, this is a great, that, 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 this, this comes from a brilliant book by, by Daniel Imanwar. Uh, but, but what he argues in the piece is that, uh, is that Americans, and again, from all walks of life, Democrats and Republicans have tended to insist that America is not and never has been an empire. But this goes against who we are. But unlike the colonial, uh, powers we cast off, uh, of Europe that, that continue to have empires, we were an independent nation that believed in democracy. We would never do that to anyone else. Well, as he shows, America has effectively had an empire. It's had it in territorial holdings first in the West and then across the Pacific, uh, and, and that we've acted in imperial ways. And so, again, this idea that America is exceptional, that we, that we don't follow the usual rules of other countries, uh, Daniel shows in that piece uh, quite starkly uh, that in terms of our foreign policy, we really have an all but name uh, had an empire of our own. He also says in that, in that essay, quote, the reason Congress held territories back from statehood wasn't that no one had lived in them, but because the wrong people did. So... So what I'm hearing here is that, like, we got the land, let's say, through the Louisiana Purchase or, or whatever, but it wasn't until the sort of dominant culture were the right whites that we then welcomed them into statehood. That's right. Yeah. So 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 look at the at the population in the Dakotas, right? The Dakota Territory altogether barely had enough population to be considered a state, and Republicans in 1880 wind up splitting it into two. Because you've got enough people there who are all white and are going to vote Republican, right? Uh, and yet places in the Southwest, Arizona, New Mexico, don't become states until 1912, 1913, I think. Mm -hmm. um, you've got overseas holdings. There's a real resistance to making uh, Hawaii uh, a state. Uh, it's eventually overcome. Uh, but other uh, holdings like, um, say, the Philippines uh, or Guam, American Samoa, uh, all these are really resented. We see Puerto Rico today. There's a huge population in Puerto Rico. Uh, and uh, there's resistance, uh, I think, not um, secretly uh, to making uh, its citizens, uh, 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 to making it into a state uh, precisely because of the population there. Uh, Washington, D.C.? Washington, D.C. is exactly the same way. Washington, I mean, D.C. Has a, I mean, and people say, oh, it's just a small city. It's a city with a population bigger than a lot of current states, right? But it's our seat of government country. is there. It's seat of government is there. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about your, your essay that you contributed for this. And I have to imagine you're putting this together, uh, you and Julian, and you're like, did you have to like really say, like, all right, what am I going to write about? What is like, and yours is about the Southern strategy. Yeah. And I thought it was fascinating, but what led you to pick that in, in regard? Well, to in a way, this was the starting point of the, of the yeah. whole book, uh, because okay. my, my agent for years, uh, as you know, I'm on Twitter and I've been pushing back against um, uh, myths and lies on Twitter for a long time. And my agent as all, as any good agent would do, said, hey, we got to cash in on this. We should make a book. You should do a book about all your tweets. Said, on your tweets. I don't want to work about tweets. <laughs> no. Okay, well, you, you can do a book where you expand all these into larger essays. Okay, that's a great idea, that's but a cool that's idea. a lot of work. Yeah. What I could do is edit a collection in which I do this one thing I've done to death on Twitter, on the Southern mm -hmm. Strategy, mm -hmm. and then we could get an all-star team to do the other one. So that, that's how the book came about. So the Southern Strategy was actually the first thing we had in place. Um, uh, and... Uh, and it's odd because a decade ago, if you'd asked me to name popular myths about American history, this wouldn't have come up at all. No, this, that, was like, that was the thing I was shocked about. And yeah. so you, you quote uh, Carol Swain, who is with PragerU, that yeah. you know, esteemed lice, yeah. in a 2017 video saying, quote, the story of the two parties switching identities is a myth. Yeah. It's, and again, this is. The, the idea of party realignment, there are there's schools of, of scholars in history and politics. This is all they do. I learned about the, the, this when I was in school in the, in the early 90s. Yeah. Um, 
And it's so commonplace. The Republicans themselves, a little more, uh, about five years before when, when, when Swain was running that, or 10 years before, Republican leaders were apologizing for the Southern strategy. The Southern strategy is, for those who don't know, the, the story of how the Republican Party finally decided to make peace uh, on issues of civil rights and reach out and welcome the support and actively recruit the support of Southern segregationists who'd long been Democrats, right? Mm-hmm. And this is a something that, again, Republicans had apologized for. Ken Melman, the chair of the RNC, apologizes for it before the NAACP. Michael Steele, an African-American uh, who becomes the head of the RNC, also apologized for it. And they're seen in the Bush era to be, a, and I think a sincere effort to apologize for this racist past, and to say, we are not that old Republican Party. We've turned the page. Look at this party that Bush has, has created with Colin Powell and Condoleezza Rice and Alberto Gonzalez. We are a much more multiracial party. We're going to close the book on the Southern strategy, right? And so I thought, okay, they're finally moving a new direction. Well, what happened? The Trump era came and replaced the Bush era. And right. instead of apologizing for this racist past, this new wave of activists decided, well, we're just going to pretend it never happened. So we're being accused of being racist today. Well, what the easiest way to deny that is to say the Republican Party is incapable of racism, had never embraced racism before, right? So they've been claimed that this stuff is entirely made up. Again, it's ludicrous because it's something that's all over the public record in the 60s. Nixon talks about it in his memoirs. Nixon's strategists are talking about it in the newspaper at the time. I mean, this is all out on the record. It's in the archives. It's in the polling. It's in the party platforms. It's all over the place. So for me, this was something that was necessary to write, but it was incredibly easy. Uh, all yeah. the sources were were kind of hiding in plain sight. So uh, it was kind of a fun one for me to do. Well, one of them being that in 1932, Roosevelt received 23% of the black vote. Right. In 1936, 71%. Right. I mean, that is, un- that is unheard of. It's a massive switch. Truman wins 77%. Yeah. That yeah. that is just that's completely again. Right. It is the switch. Yeah. Now now what 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 people denying this will say will say oh well, those black voters went to the De- Democratic Party not because of civil rights. They're absolutely right. Uh, I've, I've seen this thrown out as a gotcha online, but they're absolutely right. Black voters switched to the Democratic Party, which is still in the 30s, dominated by Southern Democrats, still the party of segregation, still the party of of white supremacy. They joined the Democratic Party, not because of its record on civil rights, but in spite of it, because they're benefiting from the New Deal. But once they're part of that party, well, suddenly party leaders start to realize, oh, these are important. These are our voters. Yeah. What do our voters want? They want some change on civil rights. So you see this by the time we get to Truman, the party has really come around and at the urging of northern liberals like Hubert Humphrey really embraced civil rights as a political issue. Now, that sparks... The Dixiecrat revolt, right? You get the when 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 the, the the 48 convention passes its civil rights plank, the delegations from Mississippi and Alabama walk out and form the Dixiecrat Party, the states' rights Democratic Party, nominate Strom Thurmond as their president, and they run this little uh, kind of third party uh, 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 um, outbreak. It goes down in flames, but it signals to both Democrats and to Republicans. That Southern Democrats are up for grabs, right? These old ties that kept them tied to the Democratic Party are up for grabs. And what I found in researching this piece is that the Southern strategy story, which we often think takes place in the 60s with Goldwater, was underway a decade before. Right. Right after, right after the Dixie Grant Revolt, Republicans are down there, literally down in the South, saying, you need to come over to the Republican Party. Guy Gabrielson, the head of the RNC, goes down to Alabama in 1952 and says, Republicans believe in states' rights. Dixiecrats believe in states' rights. We should get together and 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 uh, and, and cooperate here and, and kind of form a new party. There's a heartbreaking quote in here, and this is from the 1964 Republican National Convention. So Jackie Robinson, lifelong yeah. Republican, oh. says, I now believe I know how it felt to be a Jew in Hitler's Germany. I mean, yeah. that is a very powerful statement at that time because we're not that far from Hitler's Germany at That's that time. Right. That's right. And and Robinson was somebody who had, who had been a loyal Republican. And many African-Americans, we should stress, many African-Americans, despite that switch to the Democratic Party, there were still about a third of African-Americans who were voting for Republicans as late as 1960, when Nixon runs for the first time, when he's vice president. And Nixon runs on a strong civil rights plank. And Jackie, Jackie Robinson 
is enthusiastic about Nixon in 60. But when Goldwater gets the nomination in 64, no one had been more closely tied to this Southern strategy than Barry Goldwater. He'd been campaigning in the South, appearing before segregationist audiences, uh, did the radio program, the Citizens Council, uh, told one crowd in South Carolina, there's not a piece of paper's difference between a conservative Republican and a conservative Democrat like Strom Thurmond, right? Mm. He'd been making this case to the South uh, for a long time. And after Nixon's defeat in 60, he says, well, it's time for us to go hunting where the ducks are. By that, he means ignore Northern liberal blacks, recruit Southern conservative whites. And so by the time Goldwater gets that nomination, it's clear where the party is going. And people like Jack, like Jackie Robinson are horrified. And then the convention is one in which, you know, not even California, California sends an all white delegation. Uh, a lot of the Southern states send all white delegations. And the few black delegates who are there, people like Robinson, are physically assaulted. One has yeah. cigarettes put on his coat. One has a suit uh, caught on fire. You know, they're taunted. Uh, and that's why Robinson reacts so viscerally and, and goes all in for the Democratic Party uh, that year. It's interesting working in a place like Second City. I worked here for 34 years. Uh, and, you know, we're so close to Lincoln Park and the folks who were in that. I know people were in the cast in 1968 and in here. And, and, and it's and Abby Hoffman used to come do the late night improv set here oh, really? just to be seen. So uh-huh. like, well, I was at Second City when he really just came in, was on stage and then left to go do what he was doing with the Yippies. Um, and, you know, it was and, and the audience, this the, this thing that we see over time, which is I know at that time the audience shifted in the sense that everyone like at least they should know, you know, we're an urban liberal, you know, it's yeah. a. Come on, there's a bunch of artists who are doing comedy, um, but but they would be yelling at the stage. And that happened uh, with uh, Bush, too, uh, at a certain point where they're yelling at the stage and then Trump had happened. They're yelling at the stage. And it just it's like those are the those are the ones I've witnessed in the, in the modern era uh, here. And it's just, it's just this sort of and it's and it doesn't it's not happening now. Yeah, it's it's so interesting how the rhetoric it's like the people haven't necessarily changed and their affiliations haven't necessarily changed it's just this sort of emboldened you know position where you're suddenly feel okay at a comedy club to yell at like yeah. a 26 year old whose you know view you disagree with yeah people take their cues from their political leaders uh and, and i think we, we certainly saw that during the trump era i don't think that it was suddenly large swaths of americans suddenly became racist or homophobic or, no. or what else they would just realize that they suddenly had a license to say it, right? Yeah. Uh, and and that's and that's I think what what, what Trump gave them. Uh, in a moment, I'm going to ask you for a yes and story. Before we do that, I want to touch on on two two of the other essays. Yeah. So I uh, when Trump got elected, I was doing a speaking date in San Francisco, and I kind of knew early that things were going bad because I have friends who worked on the campaign. Um, and there was an all night Starbucks. So it was like four in the morning. I was I couldn't sleep, and I had to go over and console the baristas who were crying. Uh, and my, my big thing with them was I was going to college when Reagan, you know, was yeah. was elected for that second term. And we all thought we we're going to die in a, you know, horrible uh, and basically nukes. Yeah. Um, and your co-editor, Julian, has a fascinating piece on the Reagan revolution that our idea of what both that was and what actually happened yeah. uh, is very different. Yeah. So that, that is that. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great piece. And, and what Julian shows there is that that term we use, the Reagan revolution, revolution. that's their marketing. They were telling people this is real, a revolution. Real good marketing. And surely Republican rank and file folks believed it, but the media believed it too. Yeah. Uh, and, and it largely kind of wrote this as if, you know, the world, were, as Reagan said, you know, the, we have a chance to begin the world again anew. As if he really had, as if he wiped the slate clean. But what Julian shows in there is that despite the Republican electoral victories, and that 84 one I think looms really large in our mind, yeah. that, that, that re-election landslide over, over Walter Mondale. But a year before, the economy's in shatters, unemployment is over 10%, Reagan is holding in like the 30s. A couple of years later, with Iran-Contra, he's back down in the 30s. He's deeply unpopular at several points in his presidency. And not only beyond his personal popularity, the policies. Yeah, a lot of big things change. You, if you look at a graph of any uh, of anything in America, a chart, there's usually an inflection point around 1980, for usually for the worse. Um, mm-hmm. But 
not everything changed. So look at Social Security. He wanted to tackle Social Security. This is where we get the phrase from Tip O'Neill's aid that Social Security is the third rail of American politics. And like the third rail of a subway, it's got all the electricity. You touch it, you die. Reagan's the one who showed us that, right? He tried to tackle Social Security and he went down in flames, right? He tried to do a lot of big things and it didn't go well. A lot of huge changes, certainly remarkable changes, uh, an impactful president to be sure, but not a revolution. The slate wasn't wiped clean. And I think that's, again, the, the lesson that uh, I'm glad you shared that with your, your, your the baristas in 2016, because as we saw then, some things change and change dramatically, but it's not all all things changing. It's not yeah. uh, kind of wiping it out. Yeah. No, I, I don't know that I helped. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you could have helped anyone. We all no, remember no, that. It was, a, it was a dark period. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Welfare spending went up in the 80s. <laughs> yeah. This, that's, you know. I mean, deregulation, of course, that's probably the big thing that we think of that certainly happened and had, had an effect and continues mm-hmm. to, continue sure. to have the, the negative sort of effects. All right. The, the last thing I want to talk to you about before we get to the yes and story is around voter fraud. Yeah. Because this is, yeah. I, I, I mean, you just hear it. I mean, we just had an election yep. uh, yesterday here. Uh, my guy won, mm-hmm. um, which is great. Uh, but it, it, let's, it, let's it, go, Brandon. Let's go, Brandon. Yeah, exactly. But people were, t- and you heard certain being like, well, concerned about voter fraud. My conservative friends talk about like voter fraud, yeah. but like, it's not a thing. No, no. I mean, it's, it's, it's a thing in that it happens, but not a thing on the scale in which we're led to believe. It, Trump running around saying, you know, three to five million fraudulent votes. Well, I mean, this is one of the up- upsides of Trump getting power. Yeah. Because he threw a ton of resources at this. Mm-hmm. He had a presidential commission, got Chris Kobach, one of the nuts from my home state of Kansas, who pushes this stuff. And they had all the resources of the federal government. And they went, they rolled up their sleeves and went looking for these millions of fraudulent votes and came up empty. Uh, and so as Carol shows, this is a constant trope uh, throughout American history, certainly after the Voting Rights Act and the widespread um, uh, um, um, uh, use of the franchise by African-Americans, that there is something nefarious about Democratic votes, uh, especially from urban centers, that they must be uh, they must be um, fraudulent. They must be fake. There have been instances in the past of this happening. Well, let's be clear. You know, um, we, the political history is filled with stories from the 30s and 40s of, of political shenanigans. But the idea that it continues to this very day and continues uh, on the, the scale of millions of votes is total nonsense. And so Carol's piece um, uh, coming out of her own research for a great book called uh, One Person, No Vote uh, is is really a remarkable um, kind of a rejection of that. It's, it's, it's a nice forceful rebuttal. Uh, it's, it, and it's why we end the book on there, because I think it's the one that, that sticks to the landing uh, it speaks to our present moment, whenever that'll be. Yeah, because because the, this term now, the big lie, which is very interesting in certain yep. historical precedents. Uh, uh, and then this, you know, the Mississippi plan, which she talks about, which is poll taxes and literacy tests and all these sort of. So, you know, um, there were so many non-votes. Let's start right. talking about like fake fake votes or whatever, whatever like dude, keeping people. And that that thing is still happening constantly. I mean, the, the, Absolutely. the Republicans Absolutely. never, they don't want it. And this is the, the delicious irony of the Trump thing is him, you know, bemoaning mail-in voting. And it's like, you are screwing yourself because yeah. like, that is what, what I, and it's why the election called for Brandon when they were, hadn't counted the 180,000 mail-in votes because we all know where those votes are going to go. Exactly right. And, and traditionally, mail-in voting had been a Republican thing, right? It was, it was. It was Republicans who used mail-in voting. So yeah, really uh, bizarre. And, and the attack on mail-in voting, of course, we often forget, that includes the military vote, right? Overseas uh, military ballots. Uh, and, and yet, I don't think any politician left or right wants to be seen as kind of, you know, screwing over the military. I've also been... Um, Enjoying is the wrong word, but I'm going to I'm going to use it. Uh, the all the the Twitter uh, takes on how dare with the precedent that's being set by oh, yeah. w- with with the Trump thing. I mean, I live in Illinois. Right. All we do is send our Democratic governors to jail. That right. is that is tradition. Yep. And it, 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 I'm in New Jersey. I mean, oh, you know, come on. Come. I mean, I mean, the also, idea that yeah, the idea that that. I mean, this is what's so funny. Are the Republicans saying, oh, well, someone's going to come after Democratic politicians? Ask any Democrat. They'll say, yeah, you should go after these guys. You should go after these Democrats. I hate these guys. 
So we've all, you in Illinois, me in, in New Jersey, mm-hmm. we've all lived with, no matter what state you're in, you're listening to this, you've all had mayors and governors and all, I grew up in Tennessee, right? And, and one of the things I remember from Tennessee history was we learned in eighth grade about Governor Ray Blanton going to jail, right? This mm-hmm. is in the 70s. We took, presidents aren't above the law. There's not an exception to that. And the idea, to go back to our comment about banana republic, the idea that America is going to become a banana republic if we hold everyone accountable to the same rules and not that we're going to be a banana republic if we carve out special protections for the rich and powerful is insane. It's insane. Yes. We're going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And if other, and I say this as a Democrat, if Democratic presidents have committed crimes, have at them. I don't Please. care. Lock yeah. them up. Yeah. If they, if they've committed crimes, do it. When John, I voted for John Edwards in the primary and then John Edwards went to prison for basically the same thing Trump did. We were not in the streets. No. demanding john edwards be set free no we were just saying well to hell with john edwards you know that's right, that's right. right. i live two blocks from rod Blagojevich. Okay. um he i see him probably every other day and you'll be happy to know the hair has gone from white when he got out real gradually getting darker and darker <laughs> i'm expecting full-on elvis by the summer is, <laughs> is that awesome and we actually created a show here when he went down when this all went down um, it, uh, it, you know, this is also during the economic collapse mm-hmm. and at second city, we were basically having like no new shows, no, like just, we got to save money. It's like, no yeah. one's going out. And, uh, we got drunk at a holiday party. And one of my, uh, friends here came up with, we he basically said we should do a rock opera called Rob Blagojevich superstar. <laughs> um, and I went to my owner. I'm like, he's like, do it. <laughs> just don't spend anything. And the, and the mate, this is how shameless this guy is. It, it, the show, the show, the show opens, and we're sold out like for the entire run. It was just supposed to be on like Tuesdays he, and Wednesdays. And did he demand a cut? Hmm? Did he demand a cut? He wanted a price of this. I'm getting to that. Okay, sorry. No, no, no. Because that's that's it, it, he didn't ask for a cut, but I went. So the first night, uh, Carol Marine comes up to me, the well-known sort of uh, uh, Chicago media person, is like, "You know who this whole section is?" I'm like, "No, that that's all the people working his office." Um, and they were amazed at our accuracy when our accuracy was Wikipedia. Um, <laughs> and then we transferred to Chicago Shakespeare Theater, a bigger theater, studio theater. And then we invited him to be part of the show. And um, he, he he wanted to donate. He's like, well, I want to do a donation. And I'm like, well, what are you donating to? There's never donating to anyone. He wanted $10,000. Yeah. Which we gave him because we, it was a media expense and it sold out the run for another like six, six or seven months. Yeah. He's back. This show, he sat through a show that is just lambasting him. There's a second city just skewering him. And then he did a little improv set with us where he further made fun of us. And then he sent a gift to the cast and it was a bigger hairbrush for our blogo because the hairbrush wasn't big enough. I just, it's, it ceases being theater. <laughs> It's, it's, yeah. And it feels like, and this is, this is the thing about working here. Uh, you know, th- there were so many articles, as you know, written around comedy and Trump and how, yeah. and like, you know, and I'm like, I, I, I'm telling you, it's hard. I and, it. and the other thing is, Trump is funny. I mean, I, I think, I, I hate to break it to you, he is using comedy. And, and my friend, yeah, no, 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 he, he is. Yeah. 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 Yeah, as, but as as a way, like a Don Rickles would, you know, in terms of and pushing yeah. people out. Yeah, that, yeah, that's that history is 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 long. And my friend Nir Ayala always says it's not a superpower unless it can be used for evil. I'm like, this is a good example. This is this is in terms of how how he's using that. So I think that that you know your collection is about myths that go back you know eons and continue to this day. Very important. And yet, as you begin this, you know, in in your original thoughts and the introductions like it's different right now because because individuals have a certain kind of power to propagate an idea or a misunderstanding or a mistake and that you know we thought that maybe like certainly when jack was running twitter that there might be some modicum of you know like protect us from that that is gone gone yeah i mean i don't know how long do you stay on twitter uh, honestly, I, I expect it to be, you know, every time I wake up, I expect it to be dead. And, uh, and one day I will be right. Um, <laughs> the, the wheels have been slowly coming off this, uh, the threat to take away 
uh, he so badly misunderstands the way in which the thing works, but he yeah. so jealously wanted the kind of the blue check mystique. They didn't realize the whole point of the blue checks was just to say, this is who people are that, that the people who had them weren't really, I have one. I'm not, you can take it from me anytime. In fact, I'm, I'm begging him to take it from me because now I look like someone who paid for it. Um, oh, but he, ha- he hasn't taken it for you. He hasn't <laughs> taken it away yet. No, no, no. Well, cause it's another promise. He's screwed up. Yeah. But the whole point of, of the whole appeal of Twitter when I got on was, Hey, there's David Cross and Pat Oswald and, and people I, I love to hear from. And oh, I can respond to him and I know it's him. That's cool. Yeah, it is cool. And now who knows? Right? Right. N- now it's as someone said, either this is Taylor Swift or someone with eight dollars. We mm. don't know, you know? And that's gonna kill the model. He just so doesn't understand it. He thinks people were paying for one of that blue check as a as a sign of validation. I guarantee you, you know, Taylor Swift or LeBron James don't give a shit about check they've got a lot of other money and fame and fortune uh, that makes them feel big important people the twitter check doesn't do anything it's for people who want to come up and feel like they're in their presence right and he didn't realize that yeah it's a direct (laughs) so we always end the podcast asking our guests for yes and stories on the parlance of improvisation when two people are making something out of nothing they get nowhere saying no and actually don't get that far by saying yes when they affirm and contribute, they're allowed to sort of explore and heighten. It's at the root of how we do our work. And then we've taken that into businesses and healthcare and all other kinds of places that shut, often shut down uh, innovation way too early. So I'm wondering if you've got a yes and story for us. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, in a way, I think the uh, the book is the, is the yes and story. Uh, again, I, I kept saying no when my uh, agent was trying to pitch this to me. And finally I said, yes, and let's get other people involved. Um, and, and I think had I done this book and I just said, yes, had I just done the book that my agent was pitching, either it'd be tweets or just me writing it. It would have been, I mean, I'm, I'm decent. It would have been okay. But I think the book became really stellar because we got 20 people to, my yes. And was to invite 18 other people to come into this volume with Julian and me and write about the stuff they know best. Hmm. Uh, and, and and so we've got a kind of a, a, a chorus of historians here who produce something much bigger than I ever could have done on my own. And so I, I think that's my yes and. I like it because, I mean, you you are inviting that diverse set of opinions because we all have blind spots. We're propagating yeah. this ourselves. And you, I'll give you an example of one that came up uh, in my field, which I, I just thought was interesting. And this was around all the George Floyd stuff, and we work with young people. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, in our field, there is a term, the show must go on. And I'm like, I kind of like the grid of that. We all like it. And then I'm like, huh, has that ever been used for evil? Mm. Yes. Yes. And and you know what? If someone is sick, the show shouldn't go on. And I just, it was like, that was sort of a stunning moment for me of realizing like, oh, this this didn't mean the same for everyone as it might have did from my privileged seat. Right. So I feel like you inviting in these other folks was giving you an opportunity actually for you to learn something. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and again, a lot of these essays we talked about, especially the early ones, the Vanishing Indian, the... I learned a lot from them. Just like, just like you said, you were surprised. I was surprised by that too. So yeah, it's a treat. The book is called Myth America, Historians Take on the Biggest Legends and Lies About Our Past. Kevin Cruz, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It was great. Getting the SN is produced by Second City Works and WGN Radio. Our editor and producer is L.F. Garris. We get support at the Second City from Jenny Crowley, Abby Bumblebear, Mike Farinaccio, and Colleen Fahey. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you have questions, guest ideas, or if you want more information on working with Second City Works, you can go to www.secondcityworks.com, or you can email us directly at works at secondcity.com.
Survive. 